So good to see you guys. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And I uh, told you at the end of April that I was not going to be preaching in May because I was uh, being part of this task force with the rest of uh, Redemption Church's leadership, trying to figure out really kind of what's next for the connection between our 10 congregations. Uh, that work has been going well. There's a couple weeks left of it. Um, and uh, I appreciate just your prayers and your concern and care for that. I do anticipate something's going to change. That's why we've been working on a project. Uh, but we'll share more about that as, uh, as we know more and as things uh, come out. But thanks for your prayers in it. Thanks for your patience. And uh, it's great to be back with you. It's great to be uh, preaching again. So, uh, well, that's, that's sweet. Thanks, mom, for clapping. Uh, um, no, it's, it's uh, really is fun. So one of my uh, fun icebreaker games that I like, I mean, obviously you go to parties, you go to events, you go to stuff, people do this sometimes, but one that I like a lot is the two truths and a lie. You know that game where you got to come up with three statements, two of them have to be true, one of them is a lie, you got to figure out which one it actually is. And so uh, today we're going to play two truths and a lie. So I've got, I've got three statements and you've got to figure out which one you think is not true. All right. A, I was high school friends with John Elway's daughter. B, I once played catch on the Great Wall of China. C, I once attended the San Diego Padres end of season party. Which is not true? Two of those are true. Which one is it? I'm hearing some B. A, I'm hearing A, C. This is, see, this is perfect, right? I'm hearing all the numbers, all the letters. That's great. All right, let's go in reverse order. In reverse order, I once attended the San Diego Padres end of season party. That is true. That is true. I had a friend that played for the Padres and we were in town watching him for the last like homestand. And he said, hey, we've got an end of the year party. Do you guys want to come tonight? I'm like, yes. Like, I don't need to think about that. Like, that's easy. And I'd been to lots of end of year team parties, right? They typically gave out like trophies or ribbons or something. This one, they gave out Rolexes. It was at the owner's house. And like these multimillionaires were looking around at the owner's house going, have you ever been in a place like this? It showed me like someone always has more money than you, like no matter what. So anyway, yeah, that's true. Uh, B is true. I have played catch on the Great Wall of China. When I was 14, my parents took me there. We took our baseball gloves. Why wouldn't you play catch on the Great Wall of China? Uh, the one that's a lie is A. I was not high school friends with John Elway's daughter. I was high school friends with Mike Shanahan's son, Kyle Shanahan, who's now the coach of the 49ers. So we were high school friends. Uh, but John Elway's daughter, didn't know her. Uh, she was a few years younger than me, but went to our same high school. So that's two truths and a lie. The reason I do that is because today's sermon, as we kick off 1 John, here's what we're doing, is we're looking at three lies and a truth. Three lies and a truth. That's the title of today's message. There's three lies in this passage in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 9. These are lies that we tell ourselves. And by the way, the most dangerous lies are the ones we tell ourselves. We tell us ourselves these lies. We speak these lies uh, by the way we live. And like the two truths in a lie game, what makes the lie actually kind of compelling is that it might be true. It just seems close enough to something that could be true that it's like, oh, maybe that's it. And in the same way, these lies are seductive because they kind of appeal to us. They resonate with us in some way. And so that's what we're going to look at in this text. And what I want to tell you tonight on the front end is that the more of these lies you believe, the more of these lies we believe, the further away God will feel, the more insecure we'll be in our relationship with him, and the weaker our witness about him to others will be. 
The more of these lies we embrace, the, the further away he'll seem, the more insecure we'll seem, and the weaker our witness, our desire to see other people know and love and trust him, uh, the weaker that will be as well. So uh, we're going to focus mostly on verses 5 to 10 tonight, but before we do, I want to uh, give you a bit of an overview of where we're going to be in 1 John, because we're going to do this June, July, and August. We're going to be uh, just walking through 1 John a little bit at a time. I think it'll be a fun study. Uh, the 1 John was written by John. Uh, thus the name. Uh, he is the disciple of Jesus. He also wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, he was one of the 12, but he wasn't just one of the 12. He was also one of the three. If you follow the ministry of Jesus, you see there's like 70 people who follow him around. Then there's 12 who were chosen as disciples, as apostles. Then there's three who get inside access to stuff. They see when he raises the dead in some places, when he's transfigured, they get to kind of special access. They're there praying with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, they're sleeping while he's praying. But you, you get the idea. John was one of those three. He was probably the youngest. He was probably a teenager at the time of Jesus' ministry, probably the youngest among all of these disciples. Uh, he was nicknamed, along with his brother James, the Sons of Thunder, Right In his youthful zeal, uh, he would see people that didn't seem to respect Jesus, and he wanted to call down lightning from heaven on them, <laughs> and they got the nickname the Sons of Thunder. Interesting that such a theme of 1 John is about how we need to love one another. The Son of Thunder became the champion of love. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, his parents were Zebedee and Salome. Salome is one of the women that's mentioned at the crucifixion of Jesus with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there was a kind of tight-knit relational family situation. Um, there's a competitiveness to John that I think is kind of fun. It says in John chapter 20, verse 4, it's describing uh, that Peter and John both experienced this empty tomb and they raced to go tell the disciples. And it says that John went faster than Peter. I just love that he went ahead and wrote that, right? Such a little brother move. Like, dude, come on, I was faster, you know? So I think that's kind of cool. Um, but now he's writing 1 John, and uh, he's been through a lot now at this point. He's no longer a teenager. Most scholars would say he's probably in his 70s or 80s. Maybe at the point that he's writing this, some people think it's quite possible that he's the last apostle standing. That all the others have, at this point, been martyred. They've been killed. They've given their lives for their faith. By the way, that's one of the reasons I think Christianity is true, right? Sometimes people say, ah, oh, Christianity can't be true. The disciples just made it up. Here's the thing. If you just made it up, you wouldn't die for something you knew you made up, right? When push came to shove, you'd go, hey, we just made it up. But they gave up their lives. They willingly sacrificed themselves because they didn't make it up. It really happened. And so John is the last apostle standing. And at the point that he writes this, he's been through a lot. A lot of us have been through a lot. But John's been through a lot. He's been through some serious traumatic experiences. One was having to watch Jesus be crucified. He was there. He was the only disciple that actually witnessed it. Saw the nails in his hands. Saw the crown of thorns, saw the spear go in his side, heard him call out his last gasp, saw the blood running down his body. That's traumatic. Second traumatic experience John experienced was uh, in the book of Acts. It's recorded that his brother James, Peter, James, and John were the pillars of that early Jerusalem church. And James is one of the first disciples martyred for his faith. And so he saw that. He, his brother was beheaded by Herod. And he had to go through that, losing a brother. 
And then he's writing these after the year 70 AD. And that was the time when Jerusalem had fallen in the Jewish wars. So in the Jewish wars, he'd seen all of his countrymen and his neighbors and his friends and his family, all these people, Jews and Christians who have experienced death, who've experienced war, who've experienced displacement. He's now writing this probably from Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And so he's made quite a journey This is a man who's writing from a place of trauma and grief and loss and pain and heartache. He's not just writing from the mountaintop. He's writing from the valley. But here's what's what's really cool about it. Is even though he's been in a place of trauma and grief and loss and pain, he's going to tell us that God is still good. That's going to be a major theme in this book. One commentator says he's commending, John is, he's commending the goodness of Christ in a world that he has seen bleeding and smoldering. A lot of us, when we experience trauma, when we experience difficulty, when we experience loss, we experience unmet hopes and expectations, we start to go, God, where are you? God, how could this happen? God, what, what, why did you let me down? And John, rather than going away from the Lord, is trying to help us cling to him. And that really is the situation that drives his writing of this book. It seems that some uh, in a church that John had been part of have broken away. They had been part of the church, they knew about his gospel, they knew about Jesus and who he was, but they've now broken away from the church and they're teaching falsehoods. And as you put it together, based on what uh, he addresses here in first, second, and third John, what you see is that these people are teaching some kind of theology that Jesus didn't really have a body. Right, there was this Greek dualism that had been around for a long time that said that the body was icky and bad and the soul and the spirit was good. And so that had begun to infect the church. As a result of that, they said, you know, Jesus didn't really die. He just appeared to have died. But he, you know, Jesus didn't have a body. Like God wouldn't let himself suffer that way. They were drawing people away from the true faith. They were saying, you know, obedience doesn't matter. All that matters is what you believe. All that matters is what goes on in your head. Who cares about what you actually do in your life? And so it's, it's left people unsettled. Some of the people in the church are starting to leave. The people who are left behind are starting to go, ah, is it okay? Like, should I stay? Well, what is this? Am I, like, where am I? Is, this, is any of this true? Do I really know God at all? By the way, this is not that different from what so many people are experiencing now. Because, because right now, I mean, we, we live, uh, sociologists have called it a cross-pressured age. Cross-pressured, meaning no matter what direction you're facing, you feel the pressure from the other side, right? Because nobody's beliefs are agreed on. Nobody's beliefs are considered self-evident, right? Everybody agrees with that. No, nothing. Everything is contested. Everything is a battle. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is like, well, are you sure, right? And so think about this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going, okay, I believe in Jesus and I've trusted in him. I know I'm a sinner. I know that he died for my sins. I've put my hope in him. But there's these moments where you're like, is it really true? I mean, maybe I'm nuts. I mean, that a guy rose from the dead you got all this stuff in the Bible, it's pretty hard to believe floods and whales swallowing people and walking on water. And, and so there's, you feel the cross pressure, right? In a secular age, even though you have a solid faith, you go, no, really, I'm a Christian. You, you just can't help but wonder, am I sure? On the other hand, maybe you're a person you don't really believe. 
You don't consider yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say you, you believe all that's true. You actually think it's not true. And yet there's something in you that still feels the same cross pressure and is like, am I crazy? Right, because you experience things in the world that seem like, I don't know if Darwinism and social, you know, can just like, I don't know if it can just explain that level of beauty. You watch a sunset. You see a baby be born. You hear music. And you go, how does something that beautiful fit in a natural selection world? Ah, maybe there's more to it than this. So no matter where you are, you feel that cross pressure and you feel that doubt and you feel that struggle, right? And over the ages, people have had different names for it, right? Years and years ago, it was just called having doubts, you know? Uh, maybe around the 20 years or so ago, it was called like you might have a crisis of faith. You'd go off to college and be exposed to these new things. You go, oh, it's a crisis of faith. Now we call it deconstruction. It's the same thing. It's living in the cross pressure. It's going, man, is this really true? I mean, I know what I say, I believe, but, but in light of the pain and in light of the disappointment of Christians around me and in light of the other options and all the scientific breakthrough, in light of, ah, can I be sure? <laughs> it's just stunning to me how the questions we ask are really never that new. That's why John wrote this book. Look at what he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says this, he's gonna tell us, here's why I wrote this book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It, he wrote the Gospel of John at the end of that one. He said, I wrote this so that you would believe in Jesus. Now he's saying, I'm writing to you who believe in Jesus so that you would know that it's real. So that you would know that you have eternal life. So that you would know that you're actually in the faith. So that you would know that you're actually connected to him. He's trying to help us hold on. He's trying to help us endure. That's why he's writing this. And so that's the situation going on in this book. And so these kinds of themes that are going to help us examine ourselves and assess, are we in the faith? Is this thing really true in our lives? Is it taking root in us? That's going to be something that we're going to do throughout this series. So the first four verses are really John's introduction to this whole reality. You can look at this uh, with me if you want to follow along. Right? First, uh, the gospel of John began with a, a kind of prologue, and the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. This also does. So this is 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, notice all these sensory witness kinds of words, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Do I need to reconnect? Oh, there you go, you got it. That which was from the beginning, which we, by the way, this is interesting, he keeps saying we, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon and touched with our hands. There's a bunch of places like First John uh, chapter two, verse one, he speaks in the first person singular, he says, I, by the way, I'm just going to nerd out for a second. I think this is kind of interesting. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So there's plenty of times in this letter he's going to say, I. I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this. Anytime he's speaking about what he has witnessed as it relates to Jesus, he's going to say, we. Not just me. We. There's a group of people. We all saw this. We were there. We heard it. We saw it. 
We looked upon it. We touched it with our hands. We saw this. This really happened concerning the word of life. That's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of life, that eternal word that was made flesh. In him was life and life abundantly, it says in the gospel of John. This life was made manifest. That's interesting to me. You aren't actually gonna ever get to know God. You're never gonna get to know Jesus unless it is made manifest, unless it is revealed to you. You can seek and seek and seek, and unless the Lord allows you to see, you'll never see. This life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. So you're gonna start to see, okay, here's these things we've seen and heard and witnessed. Now we're gonna tell you about it. We're gonna testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. There it is again, life, which was with the Father and was made manifest. There's that same idea again to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We saw Jesus, he made himself revealed to us. We heard him, we saw him, we're telling you about him because he is life. This reminds us of what Jesus had said in John 17, three. When Jesus was praying, he said, this is eternal life, Father, that they would know you and that they would know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Life, eternal life, true life is only found in Jesus. He's the life that is being proclaimed to us. And so he says this, here's why we're doing this, so that, here's our purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So it's fellowship with us Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have confidence and I want you to be able to stick close to Jesus. That's this word fellowship. It's this idea of partnership. It's this idea of togetherness. It's this idea of camaraderie. You're gonna have camaraderie with the Father, camaraderie with the Son, camaraderie with us. And our joy is gonna be complete as we lean in to Jesus. Now, in the next section, he's going to begin to talk about these three lies and the truth. So as we move into verse 5 through 10, that's where we're going to go. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, look at these verses together. Father, and we ask you now to come and to speak to us by your spirit. God, would you make manifest the goodness of Jesus in the gospel? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we get to verse five. He says then this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. Get artistic here for a minute. That God is light. And, and this is, I love this. He could just end the sentence here. Here's the message. God is light. But he says, just to be really clear what I mean, and in him is no darkness at all like just to be clear he is totally light he is totally righteous he is totally pure this is the song we sang just a little bit ago holy 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 that word holy means a totally different than it's majestic it's wondrous it's righteous it's perfect it's pure it's light God is light he says in him there's no darkness He's, he's not bound up with evil. He's not bound up with sin. He's not bound up with corruption. He's not bound up with decay. In him is light and there's no darkness at all. And that leads us to the first lie. 
It's the lie of posturing. The lie of posturing. Posturing, saying, well, how I live doesn't really matter. That's the first lie we're tempted to tell ourselves. So for each of these lies, it's going to begin with this phrase. If we say, each of the lies is going to have this phrase. If we say, then here's the saying, put it in quotes, we have fellowship with him. Remember, he said, that's what I want. I want you to have fellowship. I want you to have this partnership. I want you to have this togetherness. He says, if, if we say we have partnership, we have connection, we have closeness with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Just think of the logic of what he's saying here. He's saying, if you're telling me I am in close connection with God and God is light, but, but you're walking in the darkness. And by the way, this word walk is a word that isn't like you occasionally veer into the darkness. It's like the steady path you're on is the darkness, right? It's a, it's a habitual thing. It's a pattern. It's a consistent way of life. It's a lifestyle, right? You're, you're saying I'm in the light with God, but your habit, your lifestyle, your direction is in the darkness. He's going, that doesn't even make sense because God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. You get the logic here? Therefore, if you're saying you have fellowship with him while you walk in the darkness, you're lying. And you don't practice the truth. I remember a few years ago working out at Mountainside Fitness. And you know, when you work out at a pretty consistent time, you tend to see the same people there each time. And, and I would see this guy and he was in pretty good shape and I would see him working out and he would go after it pretty hard. And at one point I was like asking him, hey, what a... Like, tell me about what you're doing here. Right? When you join the gym, they, ask, they want to say, like, what are your goals? And I always want to say, my goal is to end this conversation about my goals as fast as possible. So my goal is to get a membership. That's my goal. Uh, and then for you to leave me alone, right? But so I'm asking him, like, dude, what do you, like, I see you in here all the time. What do you, like, you just trying to stay in shape? He's like, no, no, no. I'm trying to make the NFL. I'm training for the NFL. I'm like, wow, Cool. Uh, that sort of surprised me, right? Because I look at him and he was like 5'9", like maybe 180 pounds. He was in good shape, but like, and he looked a little old. I said, how old are you? He said, oh, I'm 26. By the way, in case you don't know this, most people are winding down their NFL careers at 26. They're not getting into it. I said, okay, well, uh, where did you, where'd you play in college? He said, oh, I didn't play in college. Oh, really? What position did you play in high school? Well, you know, early on in my freshman, sophomore year, I played defensive back, but you know, then, you know, the coach, everything got really political and, you know, like he had his favorites. And so, you know, I, I didn't, he didn't really play me. So I quit. Like, oh, cool, man. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> now, I don't know if any of you are NFL experts. I don't know if ESPN has invited you on to like talk, you know, with Mel Kuyper during the NFL draft or anything, but, um, Anybody think there's a snowball's chance and you know where that that guy's playing in the NFL? Right, like, what, like this is big talk. This is big dreams and like, right, listen. If, if we say we're gonna play in the NFL while we don't play high school or college, we lie and do not practice the truth. And th th this is the whole point, right? Now get this, this is so key. The, the problem, 
He's not saying if you, you fellowship with him and you occasionally sin, right? In the next few verses, he's going to say, hey, there's plenty of grace for you if you sin. But the deceit to, be, to watch out for is to be caught in an ongoing place of unrepentant sin. Where you know what God's word calls you to do and you're not doing it. And your heart is hardening and your conscience is searing and you are remaining in a place there. Like, watch out for that. Okay, you talk big and you look great and you come to worship and you have a small group and you serve, fine. But are you walking in the light? That's the first lie to watch out for is posturing, making yourself look like something that you're actually not. Second lie is in verse eight. Uh, We'll come back to verse seven, but let's look at verse eight first. It's the lie of minimizing. And with minimizing, we say, you know what? This is not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. We, we downplay it. Sin, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody does it. Again, here's this phrase. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice the similarity of the saying, right? It's you're saying this thing and therefore you're deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. Okay, what does this mean? We have no sin. Uh, on, on the surface, that sounds like what he's saying is, um, you know, I just never sin. That, that's probably not actually what it means. When you look at the way the same Greek phrase is used in the Gospel of John, it's always being used to describe uh, having guilt. Okay? So if, he say, if you say, we have no sin, what you're really saying is, I'm not guilty. Like, maybe I do stuff, but hey, I'm not guilty. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not, it's not that bad. You know, like, I mean, you you need to understand, like, here's the situation. Well, but they do it too, right? It's minimizing, it's downplaying, right? This This is your inner defense attorney that springs into action, your inner helicopter parent who, you know, the helicopter parents who show up. Some of you are teachers. You know some parents like this, right? They show up. Biff is a disaster, but their parents are always there to tell you about how Biff is totally fine. And it's like, no, Biff's a mess. Biff needs a spanking or a timeout maybe. And, uh, or I don't know what he needs, but he needs you to quit rescuing him. In the same way, like we have this inner defense attorney, this inner helicopter parent who says, wait, 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 but, but look at them. Well, but compared to, uh, uh, uh. it's been said that we judge others by their actions and ourselves by our intentions. The problem is God knows the truth. And if we say this, we deceive ourselves. And that is the self-deceit of saying, ah, it's not that bad. No, it is that bad. God made you, he made you to live a certain way. He said, this is the path of blessing, this is the path of life. When you run against the grain of that, it's, it's not just like it breaks God, the rules, it breaks God's heart. This is not who you were made to be. But we can't see it because we're self-deceived. All right, the third kind of lie to avoid is the lie of arrival. The lie of arrival. Arrival says, I'm good now. I used to be bad, but now now I'm okay. Right, so here's where it starts. If we say, there it is again. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. By the way, isn't that interesting? Right, the first one was it, you make yourself a liar. The second one was you deceive yourself. The third one is you make God a liar. So this is getting worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. So the, his word's not in you. If, you. if we say we have not sinned, what is this about? This is one of the common teachings we believe about this false teaching that had crept into the church was that they were saying, you know what? There was a time when I was really struggling. There was a time when things were really bad. But now that I've embraced this new enlightenment that's inconsistent with Christian teaching, now that I've embraced that, I don't sin anymore. I've arrived. I'm okay. Now, most of us would not say this. Most of us would not go, I don't sin anymore. We go, yeah, we do. But here's what I want to see is that functionally, a lot of the times we actually act like we've arrived. See, the verse before this, we'll come back to this in a moment, says if we confess our sins. So this passage is not saying that in order to be a faithful Christian, you need to be sinless. What it's saying is that in order to be a real Christian, you need to be honest. If you confess your sins, he'll forgive you. That's what he's going to say. But, but if we say, no, nope, don't need it, then Get this, by not confessing, we're actually acting like we've arrived. I wrote it in my notes this way. A lack of confession is a claim of perfection. A lack of confession is a claim of perfection. Now, you would say, I'm not perfect. Okay, but do you ever confess your sin? Do you ever confess it to anyone else? By the way, every other use of the, this word confession in the New Testament is not just confessing to God, but it's confessing publicly to people. Now, I don't know if that's what he has in mind with this verse. Maybe, maybe not. But James is gonna say in James chapter five, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. But if you have this arrival, I'm good now, I'm okay now, then you're not gonna do it. This is, this is one of the things that is so damaging our witness. Because think about the people that you would love to see treasure Jesus, right? Your kids, your grandkids, your family members, your neighbors, your friends, the people you work with. You would love to see them meet Christ. And, and you, you've somehow believed that in order to be a good witness, you need to be perfect. Can I, can I just give you a big spoiler alert? All those people know you're not perfect. Right, when you confess your sin to your kids, they're not typically surprised. Listen, your kids know you're sinners. They know you're a sinner. They just don't know if you know. Because a lot of times as parents, we, we act like we've arrived. We, we tell stories about the past. Every testimony is, oh yeah, back then I used to struggle, but now I'm... And so one of the most powerful things we could do for our witness is to be honest, to confess, to not just go, oh yeah, I know, I, I'm, I'm imperfect. But actually go to your kid and say, you know what, buddy, I, the way I spoke to you was mean. And it was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? To go to that person at work and say, you know what, I, I haven't been treating you very kindly. I just... I wonder if you'd forgive me. You know what you're actually showing them when you do that? 
you're showing them that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel for people who aren't perfect. If, if the gospel is be perfect, there's no hope for them, just like there's no hope for you. But that's not the good news of the gospel. So these lies we tell ourselves, posturing, minimizing, arrival, Instead, let's look at the truth, and we get the truth when we put together verse 7 and verse 9. But if we walk, there it is, if we conduct ourselves, if we consistently are going in the direction of what, of if we walk in the light, oh yeah, because God is light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Do you want to have connection with God? Do you want to have closeness with God? Do you want to have proximity to God? Then walk, conduct yourself in the light because that's where he is. All right, if you, if you say you're in the light, but you walk in the darkness, you lie. The truth's not in you. Instead, we walk in the light. We live, again, not perfectly because the next part of this verse is going to show you what you do when you're imperfect. But you walk consistently in a life of obedience. You're, you're trying to... Shut off sin. You're seeing a counselor. You're seeing a therapist. You're confessing to the people in your life, pray for me. Here's where I'm weak. Here's where I need help. That's walking in the light. And if we do that, here's an amazing promise. If we do that, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. <laughs> So get this, walking in the light's not being perfect. Walking in the light's being honest. It's being consistent, it's pursuing obedience, it's pursuing a life of faith, it's throwing off the sin and the weight that so easily entangles and fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So that's the first part of the truth. The second part we get in verse nine. If we confess our sins, again, this is agreeing with God about our sins, if we, if we do that, he is, these are stunning words, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is stunning. If you confess your sin, so get this, he's saying don't try to be perfect, stop acting like you haven't sinned, instead be honest with each other, be honest with God, confess your sin, and here's the deal, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you of your sin. Now, get this, this, this is mind-boggling. God has set it up so that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and me. And that substitution, that payment for our sin, that cleansing for our sin, was, God was so all in on it that anyone who's like, I want to cash in on that, look at the words he uses. God is faithful and just. Think about this. Faithfulness means you made a commitment and you have to do it. Just means... This is the right thing. So get this, God has gone so all in on the blood of Jesus being the way to be cleansed that if you confess your sins, it would be unfaithful of God to not forgive you. It would be wrong of God to not forgive you. That's how all in he is. That's how sufficient the blood of Jesus is. That's how much the blood of Jesus does not need you to do your good works, but instead to confess your sins and to come and to receive his forgiveness 
forgiveness. This is this canceling of a debt. And then cleansing. Oh, that word was used in verse 7. It's used again here in verse 9. Here's the Greek word is katharizo. Katharizo. It's where we get the word catharsis. Do you know what catharsis is? Catharsis is a relief from overwhelming emotion. People will describe an experience, oh, it was so cathartic. It was so healing. It made me feel so whole. It was so cathartic. That's what he's talking about. Do you want catharsis? Do you want relief? Do you want to be whole? Come to the light and confess your sin. So here's the truth. Consistent obedience, that's walking in the light. And confession of sin, that's verse 9 leads you to be connected, right, fellowship with one another, and cleansed, forgiveness of your sin. That's how you develop confidence, not confidence in yourself, but confidence in him. And I just want to ask us tonight, what if, what if we as Redemption Gateway began to be a remnant of people who put away posturing and who put away minimizing and who put away some sense that we've arrived and made it. And instead we walked in the light humbly, we confessed our sin, and we experienced the cathartic, cleansing, renewal of grace. I just think like you couldn't, you couldn't possibly get enough chairs in a room for people to experience something like that. So much of the angst we're all carrying. Jesus tonight is just saying, hey, will you, will you bring it to me and let it go? Don't posture, don't pretend, don't fake it. Don't act like you don't need grace. No, come as a child, humble at the foot of the cross. Oh, he wants to cleanse you. Let's pray. So Father, we come tonight. I think about the two men that Jesus said went to the temple. One said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other people. And the other said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus, you said it was that second man that went home made right with you. It was that second man who went home forgiven. It was that second man who went home cleansed. And so tonight, Lord, we come and we just say, have mercy on us, sinners. God, we agree with you, we confess to you that we have loved the darkness and we thank you that you've invited us to walk in your light. We pray in Christ's name.